I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. You'll find that in the Pew Bible on page 976. This is the perfect time to start a series on Ephesians, especially today. Uh, I can't think of a better passage to preach on the Sunday before Thanksgiving than the one before us today. Uh, It's filled with thanksgiving and praise to God for all the many spiritual blessings that he brings into us. Before we read this passage, uh, verses 1 through 14, I just want to give you a little background information uh, about Ephesus. Ephesus is a city in what was then called Asia Minor. Today it's it's modern-day Turkey. Uh, It it still exists, actually. Uh, I've been to visit uh, when I was uh, on a missionary journey, uh, or when I was a missionary in England, and we had a conference in Ephesus, and we were able to tour the old uh, ruins that they are uh, digging out, and, and it, a lot of the old city still exists. It's very interesting and exciting to, to be in a place where the Apostle Paul, for example, walked around, and you walk down the same street that, that he was on. So very uh, interesting, very exciting. Uh, Ephesus was one of the seven churches to whom John wrote in the book of Revelation. And this letter was written much earlier than that, but it was uh, written for the, the church there in Ephesus and probably the surrounding churches in the area. Uh, you notice the greeting is a little shorter than many of Paul's letters, and so he, he probably meant it for a, a little broader audience than just uh, the one church there in the city of Ephesus. Paul had lived there for an extended period of time. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And uh, he used it as a base from which he operated. And he had a great affinity for the people there in the city of Ephesus. You'll, uh, as we begin our study today of Ephesians, you'll, what you'll see described for us and throughout our study is Paul describing for the people the purpose of God. And I think in the title you'll see that I put the purpose of God, reasons for thanksgiving. We'll see words come up especially today in our passage, words like his purpose, his plan, his will. Paul, throughout this book, is answering questions like, what is God doing? What's he doing in the church? What's he doing in the world? What are his intentions? And these are questions that are worthy of our exploration as we live in uncertain and turbulent times. What is God doing in the world? We can see that uh, lined out for us many different aspects of our lives in the book of Ephesians. But today we turn our attention to the first 14 verses of chapter 1. Let me read that for us now. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word and write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Well, as we read this passage, you'll see that there's a lot of stuff here. Uh, We could spend months just on this passage alone, but I'm going to resist that temptation and try to give us a a flyover of this this book and not uh, delve into the the great depths. Uh, We we might could do that in the the future. John Calvin, I, I have a resource by him, sermons that he preached on the passage. He preached 48 sermons on uh, the six chapters uh, of Ephesians. And, of course, that averages out to, about, to eight sermons per chapter. Uh, I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, we'd spend the whole year on it, though it's worthy uh, to have the whole year spent on it. He loved Ephesians, and uh, I think we'll all come to love it as well if we don't already do so. But what we have here before us this morning is a eulogy. And you think, wow, a eulogy, that, that's, a, that's a shifting of the gears to say that we have a eulogy here. We often associate a eulogy with a funeral. But if you think about it, a eulogy uh, is simply a, a speech or a, a written tribute to someone uh, who has passed away. Uh, 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 we praise the one uh, who has passed away. We praise their life and maybe the things that they had done. And that word that uh, is translated blessed here in chapter and th- verse 3 uh, maybe is translated praise be to God in some other translation that you might have. That word uh, is the word from which we get our word eulogy. It's eulogeo. And uh, Paul is engaging here in a tribute. He's giving tribute to God giving praise to God, blessing God, because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know, we often talk about counting our blessings. And Thanksgiving is a time when we count our blessings. And as I said before, this is the perfect Thanksgiving text because that's exactly what Paul sets out to do. He's praising God, he's counting his blessings, he's reminding his readers and himself of all the many things that that God has done for them and for him, and he's giving praise and honor and thanks to God for it. And that's my goal for us today as we reflect on these words to appreciate all that God does for us, especially the spiritual blessings that he brings into the lives of those who put their faith and trust in him. I've categorized these for you in three sections. First of all, if you've got one of the outlines that I produced, 
First of all, we're chosen by the Father, and second, redeemed by the Son, and finally, sealed by the Spirit. So you see the, the uh, actions of the Trinity within uh, the, all the blessings that we enjoy. The Godhead providing for us in so many wonderful ways. Let's look at those. Uh, first of all, we're chosen by the Father. The counting of the blessings begins with the phrase, He chose us, in verse 4. Uh, and then in verse 5 talks about predestined us, and it mentions it again. Now we see these words like chosen and predestined, which means to decide beforehand, and it makes people uncomfortable. You know, people say, oh, you Presbyterians are always talking about predestination. And, and, and when we come to that question of God's eternal will and his purpose and, and how he decides things, uh, we often question the fairness of it. You know, is God really fair and would he really do that? But what I want you to notice, I, I don't want to go into great detail about that, but I want you to notice what Paul here is doing is reveling in the fact that God chose us, that God predestined, predestined us. It's a cause for rejoicing, not consternation. Let me illustrate it by telling you a little about a, a little fellow. A young boy named Chris, he lived in an orphanage. Uh, he had no family, no home, no hope. After all, most families want to adopt a little baby, a newborn baby, or one close to being no newborn, not a, a seven-year-old little boy. He lived in a dirty, run-down orphanage that was poorly run and had barely enough resources to take care of the hundreds of children who lived there. His only set of clothes were ragged and dirty. After all, he is a seven-year-old little boy surrounded by other children uh, with little supervision probably. And, and it was a meager existence for young Chris. Well, one day, a lady came to the orphanage and met with the administrator expressing her desire to adopt a child. And this lady was presented with a notebook. And in this notebook were pictures of the hundreds of children in the orphanage. She could have picked anyone that she wanted, but she chose that one, Chris. She chose him out of all the other children. Then she filled out all the paperwork, she and her husband, and brought him home. He got a new birth certificate with his new mother and father's name on it. So legally... He became their son. He belonged to them now. He had a family. Now, was that fair to the other children in the orphanage? We would never say that, would we? We would never think, well, that's unfair. No, this lady, this man, his parents did not have to adopt anyone at all. And how do you think Chris felt about it? You think he was worried about the fairness of it? No, he was rejoicing. He was rejoicing and excited. And that's what Paul is saying here. Being chosen is a reason for rejoicing. And let me note that it's not a reason for pride. You know, we're, as Christians, we can say, yes, we're chosen, but we don't strut around saying, yes, I'm one of the chosen ones. You know, I'm better than everybody else. No, we, we, we should never say that because we're not chosen because of anything that we did. It was God's pleasure 
not anything in us. You'll notice there in verses 5 and 9 and 11, Paul uses the phrase, according to his purpose. Other translations uh, might say his good pleasure or according to his kind intention because the word purpose actually means that which gives pleasure. Why did God choose to save some people? Why did he choose to bring some people into his family? It pleased him to do so. No other reason. He didn't look out and say, oh, now there's a good-looking fella. I want that one. And there's a really nice person. I'll have that one. No, he just decided it would give me pleasure to, to save some of these people, to bring them into my family, and I'm going to do so. Not because of anything in us, but because of something in me. It's my good pleasure. So being chosen is not something that would, should cause us pride. It should cause us to be thankful that God has broken into our lives uh, and, and pulled us out of the orphanage and brought us into his family. So we're adopted. He, we're chosen for ad, uh, adoption. And it's, it's because of his kind intention towards us. Now, verse 4 and 5 look back to the purpose of God before the foundation of the world, it says there in verse 4, and what God purposed before the foundation of the world. But verse 4 especially looks forward to the end, to the goal, to the reason that to the reason why God has purposed to do this thing. It is that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now when Chris was adopted by his new mother, one of the first things she did was to get rid of his old tattered clothes and give him a new clean set of clothes. And then she also provided a clean warm house in which to live and a comfortable bed with clean sheets on which to sleep. He got all cleaned up by his parents. Now God's ultimate purpose for the Christian is to bring us into his family to make us holy and blameless, to clean us up and set us apart for himself. And that's what he's doing in your life if you're a Christian today. God is cleaning you up. To be holy means to be set apart, to be consecrated. God has separated you for himself. And he means for you to be pure and clean and holy. We talk about things that are holy because they're very special. They're set apart for a, a, a holy use. Uh, we we uh, look at our Bibles and mine says Holy Bible on the outside. And what we're communicating there uh, that we often probably take for granted is that... Uh, that it uh, means something very specific. The Bible, which the word Bible means book, uh, is a holy book because it is a special book. It's a cut above all other books. It's set apart, and it's pure. It's truth. There's no error there. It's the holy Bible. So when we talk about something being holy, we mean it's set apart. It's special. It's pure. There's no error in it. And that is what God is doing in the life of believers. He chose us, not that we could just do whatever we wanted, but we, so that we could be holy and blameless. And we should want that because it's our unholiness, it's, it's because we are blameworthy, that our lives are all broken and messed up. And when, when, what God is trying to do for us is to help us. But we often resist that because we think, I want to go and do what I want to do, and I don't want to have anything to do with this holiness business. We were built for holiness. That's what God made us to be. Have you ever tried to 
to uh, nail a hammer with a shoe. Uh, you know, uh, uh, nail a hammer. To hammer a nail with a shoe. A little dys- dyslexic there. Uh, nobody's ever tried to, anyway. Uh, you know, it doesn't work as well. You might be able to, to get it into a, a wall with plaster or sheet, sheet rock, but you're not going to be able to nail it into a hard piece of wood very effectively. But if you get a hammer, man, you can do it all day long because you've got the right tool for the job. It's, it works well because that's what it was created for. It was created specifically for that job. We were created to bring glory to God. We were created to be pure and holy. That's what God intended for us to be in the first place, but sin entered in when Adam uh, ate the forbidden fruit, and now we're all sinful and broken, and we don't live like we should, and we, we don't function like we should, and the world doesn't work like it should. And God is in the process of fixing that, and he's going to fix it completely one day, and we look forward to that. But that's the end goal, holiness and purity, and we ought to rejoice in that. That he's, he's doing that for us. He's, he's getting us back to, the, the, to our proper place and our proper use. Now, back to Chris. Adopted into his new family. Not only was he given new parents, a new home, a nice bed, nice clothes, but he was also written into the will. Uh, he had the rights of a full heir. Verse 11 tells us that in him we have obtained an inheritance. We might think it enough that we who were enemies of God and estranged from him have now become his friends, but what Paul is rejoicing in is that what we should rejoice in is that he goes even further. Uh, he makes us not only his friends, but his children adopted into his family. We have a new status, and we have all the rights and privileges that go along with being children, including an inheritance. Now, sadly, I've lost both my parents and uh, that's sadder than the second part, which is also that I received very little in the way of inheritance. Uh, I'm not sad about that. That's not a complaint. I just don't come from wealth or royalty. Uh, my parents didn't have a whole lot to, to give uh, to me when they passed away. And because of this fact, I'm t- t- tempted to think very little of this verse because it's outside of my experience. I've never received any great inheritance other than a few things from my parents. But let me put this into perspective with a little story. It's a true story. On the night of the 16th of November, 1930, Mrs. Henrietta Garrett of Philadelphia passed away. She was 81 years old, and she was the widow of Walter Garrett. And he was uh, the last generation of Garretts to run the Levi Garrett Snuff and Tobacco Mill. Some of you may be familiar with that uh, brand of tobacco. I I am not, if you were wondering. Surprisingly, she died without a will, leaving an approximately $17 million fortune without an obvious heir. Now, what ensued was one of the most fantastic cases of inheritance litigation in history. Attempts to prove relationship to her and to claim a part or all her estate were made by more than 26,000 people from 47 states and 29 foreign countries, represented by more than 3,000 lawyers. In their frantic efforts, these alleged relatives committed perjury, faked family records, changed their own names, 
Six people were convicted of forging family Bibles in an effort to prove that Mrs. Garrett had an illegitimate son and heir. And as a result of all this activity, 12 people were fined, 10 received jail sentences, two people committed suicide, and three were murdered. Authorities had to search swamps in Maryland in order to find hidden tombstones dumped there by road builders in order to solve the genealogical mystery of her rightful heirs. And after 23 years of litigation, the court finally identified three first cousins of Henrietta Garrett's, none of whom she had ever met before. And they were the ones that got it. What an insane effort to get an inheritance. Well, it's no wonder because of the monumental uh, amount of money involved, $17 million back in 1930. That's a lot of money. Well, verse 11 here is, is telling Christians that they have received an inheritance as children of God, that they will receive an inheritance as children of God. And elsewhere in the New Testament, believers are referred to as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I did not come from wealth or royalty. But if you are a child of God, you do come from wealth and royalty. God owns everything, and he is the king of kings. And he has uh, an only begotten son, Jesus Christ, but we're joint heirs with him. So everything that he gets, we get. Everything that he receives, we receive, and we don't have to file a lawsuit to get it. We don't have to go to court. It's lavished on us by his grace. It's his good pleasure to give it to his children. Paul wants to appreciate what God has done for us here. And it is a great thing that God has done in choosing us to be his children and lavishing on us an inheritance. And the second thing that we see uh, is that we are redeemed by the Son. Another reason for rejoicing and giving thanks. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 7 and 8 tells us. Now that word redemption in the Bible is primarily used uh, to refer to slavery. It means to buy back from slavery. In the agricultural marketplace of the day, there were those who were sold as slaves. And to redeem such a person, if you redeemed a slave, that meant that you paid the purchase price in order to secure their freedom from bondage. They were slaves. You've paid the price. Now they can go free. And so what Paul is telling us is that we have redemption. We have redemption. We were enslaved, and now, because of what he's done for us, we are free. We can, we can think about Chris. Suppose... Uh, the, the young man who was adopted. Imagine if he was not in an orphanage, but what if he was a slave? That's a, a good picture of what the Lord has done for us. We were slaves to sin, in bondage, orphaned, without hope. And he not only uh, adopted us into his family, but he, he paid the price so that we could be free. And what was the price? Well, it tells us here that it was his blood. We were redeemed by his blood through his blood Jesus Christ came to earth and he paid the price our purchase price on the cross 
so that our debt would be canceled. You'll notice that when we said the Lord's Prayer, we said, forgive us our debts. That kind of language uh, is important for us because sin is a debt against God. And what Christ has done is paid for those debts. Our sins are forgiven and we're freed from our bondage to sin. So we have redemption. He goes on and further describes it as forgiveness of our sins. Not only is our debt canceled when we put our trust in Christ, but, we, but our guilt is removed. We can no longer be blamed because he has fulfilled the law for us and that is credited to us when we put our trust in him. More on that later uh, about being in him. But debt-free and guilt-free. Man, that's all, uh, that would be great to be debt-free and guilt-free in your life, wouldn't it? And that is what is offered here in Christ uh, by God. What a great reason for rejoicing and giving thanks. So thirdly, final thing, we are also sealed by the Spirit. Verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Those who put their faith and trust in Christ are given the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence in their heart, and he is a seal. Now, in those days, we think a, you know, a seal uh, was the, you know, the, wax, uh, the wax seal on a letter or a document that uh, the king pressed his signet ring into and to show three things. First, the, a seal guaranteed the genuine character of a document. The seal said, this is the king's document, and we knew it is, it's, it's, it is the king's document because it's got his seal. He was the only one with that ring with his seal on it, pressing it into the wax. So we knew of the genuine character of it. A seal also marked ownership. Whose, whose document is this? Who does it belong to? Well, it belongs to the king because it's got his seal on it. And then thirdly, it protects against tampering or harm. You better not open that because it's got the king's seal on it. And if he didn't say it's for you, you better not open it. Or uh, that, that document has a seal on it. You better not change it or mess with it in any way. It's an official document. So the Holy Spirit is a seal. Uh, when you have the Holy Spirit living in your life, it gives you some assurance. Uh, God is living in you through the Holy Spirit. It shows the genuine character of it. You should see some results of the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. Also, it marks ownership. The Holy Spirit uh, dwells in believers, in those who belong to the Lord, not in anybody else. So it marks ownership, and it protects against tampering or harm. The Holy Spirit works in us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Uh, the Holy Spirit is, is our paraclete the Bible talks about our helper our comforter he's with us he strengthens us he guides us he directs us so that Holy Spirit is important and he tells us a second thing about the sealing of the Holy Spirit that it is also a guarantee uh, the Holy Spirit who seals us is the guarantee of our inheritance that inheritance that we talked about how do we know we're going to get it well if you've got the Holy Spirit living in you then that's a, a, a down payment of sorts. The word guarantee there is a commercial loan word from the, the Semitic language signifying pledge or deposit. If someone wants to buy something but you don't have all the money required, you may put down a partial sum of money, a down payment. 
Uh, we, we often call it earnest money. When you buy a house, you, you give earnest money, $500, $1,000. And that's a promise to pay. I'm earnest about this. I mean it. I really want to buy that house. So when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, it's a guarantee that, yes, God means it. He's going to bring you home. He's going to deliver the goods. He's going to, he's going to bring you to glory. He's going to uh, eradicate all the sin in your life. He's going to make you pure and blameless. It's a guarantee, and he's given the Spirit as a down payment of that. And one day we will, we will have it delivered to us in full. These are some of the spiritual blessings that Paul gives thanks for, and we should give thanks for today. And hopefully you have a fresh appreciation for that, but I want to conclude by sharing two things and pointing out two things that are very important. First of all, you'll notice the repetition of the phrase, in him, in the beloved, in Christ. It points to a very important doctrine, and the doctrine is union with Christ. How do we get these blessings? It's not by being good people. It's not by any effort on our part or, or any, uh, any benefit or, or uh, quality that we have. It's strictly by connecting to Christ. When you're born, you have a federal representative. We understand representatives because it's our type of government. We have a federal government, which means uh, that we elect people. They represent us at the higher levels of government. Well, Adam represented the human race in the Garden of Eden. And when Adam fouled up by eating the forbidden fruit, everybody in the human race became a sinner. You know, we don't like that term sinner, and we don't like to be called sinners, but we are all sinners because we are children of Adam. We inherited it by ordinary generation, our confession says, just by being born. We're born in sin. You don't have to teach us how to sin. It comes naturally to us. Now, we don't sin all the time, but we all, all of our actions and our thoughts and our words and our deeds, they're, they're, there's sin intermingled there. We cannot escape it. It's part of us. So we have this representation problem. When Christ came into the world, he came as a new representative. Uh, when you put your faith and trust in him, when you, when you turn to him and you say, I, I am in Adam, I've got a real problem, I need somebody else to represent me, because I don't like that representative. Uh, he, he has messed me up. Maybe we feel that way about the government today. You know, we've elected these people, what, what are they doing? Well, Adam fouled it up for us, but we have a new representative, Jesus Christ. And what he did was everything that Adam didn't. He completely lived a perfect life in thought, word, and deed as a representative. He paid uh, a debt for us on the cross that we couldn't pay. He did this in our place. So by faith, by putting our trust in him, turning from our sin, our connection with Adam, and saying, I want to be yours. I, 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 want, to, I want you, Jesus. I want to have your representation he removes our sin, he cleanses us from our sin, and he starts the process of making us holy and blameless. He adopts us into his family, gives us an inheritance and showers us, lavishes on us all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. You appropriate that, as it says here, the last couple of verses, 
when you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of what I'm telling you today, and believed in him, believed in him, in Jesus Christ, putting your trust in him, saying, I want to connect with you, Lord. And, and he has promised anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will in no way be cast out. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All these blessings can be yours. All you have to do is call upon his name, turning from your sin, putting your faith in him. Thanksgiving, we've got a great reason for it. And I hope that you have a fresh appreciation for the Lord and what he's done for you. Let's conclude uh, by praying together and then we'll sing some thanks to God.